0: What's up, Mexican-American Lit class? ¿Cómo van? ¿Cómo están? Hey, this is Professor Daniel Pena. Uh, Today is the first day of Alvar Núñez Cabeza de Vaca's Chronicle of the Narvaez Expedition. You might be wondering why I picked uh, some sort of oogie-boogie, suspenseful bumper music, like from the 80s or something. It's because this story is fucking weird. And I'm not talking just like a little weird. I'm talking like really, really weird. For today, you should have read the introduction. Uh, I'd ask for you guys to read uh, the introduction, uh, the chronology, I believe it was, and then uh, just kind of familiarize yourself uh, with the history of Cabeza de Vaca. Um, This book is an interesting one because not only does it take place around uh, about where we're living right now, right, in Houston, Um, but, you know, it explores some of the... uh, as Walt Whitman would say, some of the histories in which, uh, you know, that were erased from the American imagination. We think of America as this place that was, you know, founded at Plymouth Rock or something by the British, and uh, that somehow culture started east and moved west. And I think for a lot of Americans, uh, it's just simply outside the realm of imagination. Uh, and intentionally, it's it's been sort of uh, whitewashed that way uh, to conveniently... Um, to, to forget that, you know, that, that history, that the Spanish were here before anyone, right? Of course, they talk about Christopher Columbus, the Italian, but we don't learn so much about, say, Hernán Cortés. Uh, we don't learn so much about, say, uh, Cabeza de Vaca uh, or De Soto or any of those conquistadors, right? Obviously, it's a very fraught history, right? Especially when you're talking about uh, indigenous people uh, and uh, the indigenous, frankly, they were enslaved and you know, uh, killed and systematically killed and it was a genocide that happened uh, and for those reasons uh, there's been this sort of um, uh, scrubbing of the conquistor name and, you, and, and I think this this author does a really good job I'm talking about uh, woo, what is her name uh, Ilan Stavins uh, by the way of sort of interrogating that and interrogating the ways in which Spain has viewed uh, this, this narrative, right, a cabeza de vaca uh, and those things uh he tries to lionize the conquistadors, which i think is equally as problematic um, as sort of forgetting them all together um, but it's, you can see it's a very complex thing and for those reasons i feel like no one narrative is one out uh, although you know n- not to get ahead of myself but uh, elon stevens talks about how uh, bandolier uh, the historian uh, but also uh, buckingham smith the historian who also uh, translated and, and chronicled and, and studied um, uh, La Relacion, as they call it, um, or uh, uh, what's the Spanish name for it? She gives it before it's um, Naufragos, I think it is, the the Calamities or something um, in Spanish. But Walter Buckingham Smith rather in Bondelier had this obvious investment, right, Who were to study this uh, chronicle after the uh, after the um, Mexican-American War, right? The United States had inhabited basically 50% of Mexico. And so they wanted to really interrogate, like, what they had to mythologize this land in an official, quote-unquote, official capacity. Uh, and this story, for better or for worse, was part of that narrative, so that part of the narrative of the Southwest, right? Later scholars then get into this idea that, you know, as, as we start navigating in, in the sort of remembrance of this piece, uh, not only as an artifact, but as a, as a historical happening, right? Um, what are the ways in which the ways in which has previously been remembered by, say, uh, the historians uh, Buckingham Smith and, and Bandelier? Uh, what, and which ways are those problematic, their remembrances of it? Uh, meaning, which ways are they sort of like promoting or, or, um, or talking about these sort of colonial uh, myths like the, the dishonest Spaniard and those kinds of things, right, to sort of, like, diminish the Spanish role in North America. And we'll talk about that stuff in just a second. But this is all to say that uh, it's, a, it's a it's a problematic text. Uh, it's a text that's also sort of a, a part of its time and century, but also for with relation to this class. It's sort of like there's so much in it because it talks about not only the native uh, indigenous people who Cabeza de Vaca encountered, uh, but also talks a little, a little bit about... Um, His sort of relation, his evolving relationship to the indigenous people, right? One through the colonial lens and the way in which that changes. uh, But then also uh, the way in which, um, you know, he even talks about like mestizaje. There's a lot of people who would argue that just by virtue of him being absorbed in these cultures, right? Uh, Cabeza de Vaca would be the first mestizo, right? The first sort of uh, mixed race person. Not that he was himself like genetically quote unquote mixed race, but the idea that he bought into a certain set of um, customs and and sort of there's a proto anthropology there, right? That Cabeza de Vaca um, inhabits in order to sort of survive, right, to make it all the way from Florida all the way back to Mexico City, through Galveston and all that stuff. Um, so that's worth uh, mentioning. He also talks about um, in typical Cabeza de Vaca sort of um, ambiguity. He talks about mes- mestizaje in a weird way. He talks about these uh, very light skin colored uh, indigenous people. And so a lot of people take that. There's a lot of people interpret that as the first mention of uh, mestizos and the ways in which um, perhaps Spaniards were intermarrying or forcibly raping uh, you know, indigenous women. Uh, and so, sort of, it's a if you go to the uh, like the Plaza de Tres Culturas in Mexico City, uh, there's a great plaque where they just say, you know, something to the effect of what happened here, which was a it was basically the battle between the Aztecs and the uh, the Spaniards. They say what happened here wasn't a, a victory or a defeat, but it was a painful birth of a of a people and a nation. Uh, and I think about that in terms of Hernan Cortes, who was. Uh, not Hernan Cortes, him too, but uh, Cabeza de Vaca, who, in interrogating, like, when we remember him, and remember he is just coming right on the heels, this is the 1520s, 1527 uh, to 1536, when he's abandoned, uh, between Florida and when he finally resettles in Mexico City, and so this is the time where, like, America was just discovered right before then, before 1492, in fact, Cabeza de Vaca was imprisoned himself by Hernan Cortes, who ended up, um, uh, you know, uh, conquering Mexico. And so, um, you know, these, these these are things in which not only Spain and, and the Americas were going through these radical shifts uh, in power and struggle and in uh, colonialism. But, you know, Cabeza de Vaca doesn't have the sort of faculties or the his, larger historical sort of remembrance. He's, he's looking at everything through a, um, a colonizer's gaze, Right um and also the gaze of the sort of the, the the moment of his time in which he's living uh you have to remember in spain that um in 14 in the 1490s basically the kingdoms of aragon and um castile right that's why you have the castle and the uh the lion on the the, the flag of sort of uh, the unifying kingdoms they first reunite um for better or for worse they defeat the Moors, who are Islamic, you know, Islamic rule, had, had ruled the Iberian Peninsula for, Peninsula for 600 years, um, and they had, at this time, sort of, it, was, it wasn't it was the Spanish Inquisition yet, but there were uh, rumblings of the Spanish Inquisition, uh, meaning there was a huge persecution of Jews in uh, Spain. Uh, coincidentally enough, uh, Cabeza de Vaca himself uh, was married to one of these Jewish families, conversos, they called them, people who converted to Judaism, uh, which at the time was kind of like a, a big deal, right? Um, we think of it as nothing now, but at the time it was, it was, it was a really anti-Semitic society. Uh, and uh, and it, was a, it was a time in which to be a conquistador meant to serve in a capacity of, you know, of honor, of dignity, of conquest, like this sort of God, gold, and glory. That idea that we're doing this for god we're doing this for for riches for the for the betterment of the nation and this is a pretty new nation by the way you know the the kingdoms of of aragon and, and castile had just or leon i don't know why i said aragon leon and castile they had just united and so what ended up happening was they were poor uh they had limited resources uh, and they were also looking about sort of what's going on in europe right there's a lot of um at this time Protestantism has taken a hold of Germany and the Holy Roman Empire at that time uh, you see France who is not yet Catholic really uh, going to war with Pope Julius II and what's happening is they're having these, uh, these these skirmishes and so there's a lot that's sort of you know the stronghold of of uh, Catholicism at this time really does ride within those uh, kingdoms Aragon uh, what do I say aragon what, what is that the drag Anyway, León in Castile and um, and uh, in, in Italy, right? Which is sort of the Vatican is in the Sea of Italy. And so you have these various things through which um, Cabeza de Vaca participated. The Battle of Ravenna being one of them, which was, you know, the French and, uh, and uh, really, really just the French invading uh, the Vatican. And, and Spain and Italy really being in charge of protecting them. Uh, and you also have these things where, you know, Spain is very much looking out to try to not not that they're like trying to uh uh conquer the world you know they they accidentally discover america columbus does uh just a few years before uh but they're they're trying to get resources and riches Uh, and once they find out these indigenous people there uh the excuse becomes god right god gold and glory those are the things so you have this conquistador right this cabeza de vaca who you know if you look at any of the other, uh, testimonials that are sort of done by other conquistadors, Hernán Cortés or de Soto, um, uh, or Córdoba, or any of these guys who are in South America, for instance, at this time, it's always about this sort of aggrandiz- aggrandizement. And what's interesting about this text is it's all about self-effacement. It's like uh, Stevens, uh, the person who wrote this, um, Elon Stevens, talks about how essentially uh, he he paints himself. He he talks about his desnudez, his, his 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 nudity, right? His the ways in which he was barren, uh, the way in which he was sort of like downtrodden, and the ways in which he basically survived. And so at first, this is like not a very appealing portrait. It's like oh, poor me. And so for the time, it was radical. Uh, and so we re, we we talk about it for that reason as well. Not only the mestizaje, but this idea that it's a different kind of narrative of a conquistador. But also this third thing, which is that, uh, and, and, and this is sort of uh, an argument that Stevens makes here too, is that, uh, and really it's Walt Whitman who makes this as to, by extension, the idea that this is the first writer of the Southwest. Think of that, right? This is the first, and this isn't to say that, you know, uh, indigenous people weren't recording stories and weren't sort of didn't have their own tradition as well. Um, But a lot of people, and I'm talking about Buckingham Smith, that first historian, I'm talking about Bedelier, much later, Um, Adolf Bandelier, rather. I said Bedelier, but Adolf Bandelier, uh, who, the ways in which they were viewing the Southwest, which was a colonized space, um, they didn't see it as as sort of like a, that's not where quote civilization was, right? Uh, and so, it, as an artifact, it's 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 for them. It's interesting to study it through the ways in which they might have seen this as the quote-unquote first writer of the Southwest. Um, reason we study it too is because for all those reasons, but also just because it's a really interesting and intriguing um, sort of uh, almost like an like a proto, like a very early anthropological breakdown of the indigenous groups that he encountered too. Right, the people who then did become part of like. What were the states of Texas y Coahuila? What became part of the Southwest, right? Uh, he talks, he specifically mentions the Cuadruitecans, right? I happen to be part Cuadruitecan, right, through northern Mexico and, and my family and in Texas and everything else. And what were those tribes like? What were, they, uh, what were they about? What do they look like? What were the customs, right? But moreover than that, um, how is it that they interacted with, with early colonizers? And, and what is mestizaje exactly? I'm interested in this document as a sort of proto-mestizaje, as a proto sort of like plaza de tres culturas. You know, it wasn't a success, it wasn't a defeat. Uh, it was the painful birth or the painful merging of of many cultures. Um, the tres culturas is the Spanish, the indigenous, and the mestizo, right? The in-between, this idea that like everything came together. And that's why there's a there's a Mexican writer by the name of Vasconcelos uh, who came up with the term, la, la raza cosmica, the idea of like a cosmic race, which is its own problematic thing, right? Um, it's where you hear a lot of those like fucked up things from like your abuelita, and, like mejorar la raza and stuff like that. <laughs> it's pretty fucked up, uh, but it is, it, it for better or for worse, it was part of that sort of ideology. But anyways, a lot of it has roots in this narrative, uh, which is interesting. Let's just start with the introduction. Uh, so I asked you guys just to read the introduction and the chronology uh, today. Um, and let's just go through it. I wanna I wanna start on page. It's it's Roman numerals, um, but I wanna start with. Um, uh, let's just start with the first page of of it's it's called nine in the introduction. Uh, IX uh, I is negative one X is ten. So negative one minus ten is nine. Right. Just a little ways down. This is no doubt a surprising, even perplexing way. To describe the state of an iberian conquistador in his colonial quest across the continent so she's talking about uh this quote that he's talking about i wandered through many very strange lands lost and naked this is the this that i just talked about uh she says this is no doubt a surprising even perplexing way to describe the state of an iberian conquistador in his colonial quest across the american continent readers from the 16th century to the present have gotten used to adventures of courage and domination from the likes of pizarro and Hernan cortez Adjectives like gallant, intrepid, assertive, and outlandish easily come to mind, but not quote "naked, which stands as an attribute of vulnerability and misfortune. not part of the mythical image of valor. the machinery of the Spanish Empire spread throughout the new world from 1523 to the period of independence around 1810. Right? So the first question I would really ask you guys is why would he why would he want to describe himself in that way? If, if Cortes and 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 Pizarro and and uh, de Soto, like I mentioned earlier, are all uh, describing themselves in in these valiant ways, why wouldn't Cabeza de Vaca describe himself in a you know in a valiant way? Mind you, Cabeza de Vaca comes from a a, a little bit a family of means, a family of a prestigious family, but a family that is not as prestigious as say like a duke, right? His entire life, he's always served various dukes. Um, he's uh, also lived a sort of, um, at this time, remind yourself that it is very controversial to marry into a converso family, a family that's been sort of uh, deemed a conversion to Judaism, right? That they maybe his wife had Judaism in uh, the family tree and they decide this is who we are and it's an identity thing, right? And so, you know, there, there are ways in which maybe he was castigated by that. His whole thing with Narvaez, they call it the Narvaez Expedition, because Narvaez was the guy in charge of the entire expedition. But Cabeza de Vaca came to butts with heads with this guy, and he went off on his own, and that's how he ended up in Florida, shipwrecked, right? So this is, uh, you can see how he's, he's already sort of like othered himself in, in many ways, for better or for worse. Um, so then why would he just say like, oh, I am, I am weaker, by the way, I, also, I should also mention that at this time after he's come back to Mexico City, which he stays for a period of about three years uh, and or maybe one year I think it is, 1830, 1537 rather, he goes to Spain, and that's what it is he goes to Spain, and then he stays for three years You know what, let's just look at the chronology That's why we have a chronology, this is the best part about, because uh, I'm not a historian, man I'm just remembering facts here uh, If you go to the chronology Let's see if it... And it's actually a pretty good one. So, yeah. 1536. No, 15... Yeah, 1527 to 1536. The adelantado, Panfilo de Narvaez. Adelantado is like... That's the main dude that's like the general, right? The guy. Adelantado is like the forward, the guy. He's ahead, the, the head, the charge. Uh, embarks on the expedition to Florida. Cabeza de Vaca uh, serves as treasurer... After a powerful struggle, Cabeza de Vaca takes his own route. So him and, uh, him and uh, Narvaez get into it, right? He survives shipwrecks and other natural and human disasters, and along with three other Spaniards, the Moroccan slave uh, rather, as well as Andres Dorantes and Alonso de Castillo Maldonado. He wanders from Florida to Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and finally to northern Mexico. The journey places him in a landscape uh, previously unseen by any Europeans. A little bit of a fun fact, I was just out in West Texas, uh, out near uh, Alpine, Marfa, that area, kind of by El Paso, and I took a, um, a trip, I wanted to go to Ochinaga, Mexico, which is um, uh, right across the border from Presidio, ended up not going because of uh, the COVID closures, uh, but anyways, was down there, I'm going to take a sip of this uh, H-E-B unsweetened sparkling seltzer, orange. That's my paid advertisement. There's no paid advertisement. No one's paying. No one's paying to advertise on this uh, podcast. With, like thirty listeners, right? <laughs> Twenty listeners. Um, but for what it's worth, man, that sparkling water it hits hits differently in a pandemic. That's why I tell you what. But anyways, I was down there uh, by Presidio, and uh, there was a plaque right north of Presidio that had a thing that was like Javesse de vaca." Wandered through here, and I looked around. I'll see if I can post it to uh, Blackboard. Uh, but it was the most desolate place I'd ever seen in my life. And I just I just looked around. And if you've ever been out to West Texas, it's very uh, hilly, very um, you know, there's not a lot around. It's got some Doctor Seuss landscape shit, there's a lot of weird plans out there. And I could just I imagine being out there alone. You got like Estabanico and you got Castillo right there. Uh maybe with like an Indian guide. And and it's gotta feel like, man, I I get I, I came like literally a thousand miles more if you're counting like coming from florida and uh like how much more you know like what kept him going right that to me that's the most fascinating part of the story guys shipwrecked wanders out there over nine years and ends up in mexico city that's have you ever been to mexico city it's okay (laughs) you get there and you're like oh this this is it all right now, Mexico City is actually cool. I used to live in Mexico City. I lived there for about uh, a year. Uh, I was on a Fulbright. Anyway, enough about me. Enough about Presidio. But it, it, it just the, the landscapes he was in were just rugged, completely like desolate of any green. It was it's desert, right? That's where... It's not the Chihuahuan Desert that starts there, but I think it's the... Or it actually might be the Chihuahuan Desert that starts there. I'm thinking I, I always can fix them, confuse them and the Sonora. Anyway... So, yeah, 1537, Cabeza de Vaca returns to Spain soon after the first version of La Relacion, printed in Zamora, circulates generating much interest among readers and especially among explorers. His name, Adelantado, to the River Plate, which is, uh, if you follow soccer, that's like way down there in Argentina, north of, uh, between Buenos Aires and Uruguay. Uh, located today, here it goes, between Argentina and Uruguay uh, on November 2nd, 1540. He sails to South America. So, you know... This is a guy, so to get back to the larger question, why is it that he would uh, fake, or not fake, although some would say fake, so there there are some people who just say, I'm getting off on tangents here, but uh, a lot of people take this narrative and they're like, this is dubious, and and I would actually really love to get your opinions on it, Uh, maybe in the uh, thing, do, do you take this guy at his word? But anyways, why would he diminish himself, right? All right, so put yourself in his shoes, right? This guy, already sort of othered, uh, married into a converso family at the time of uh, the unification of these two kingdoms, um, disappears with all your stuff, right? So imagine you're the king and queen; you don't have a lot of resources. You're looking for land elsewhere, like God, gold, and glory—that whole idea—and uh, you give these Narvaez folks your uh, all of your all of this money, right? And it's a very nascent, very uh, early, young kind of empire, even though it's an old country. But this new country of unified Spain is, is, is young. Uh, and then they just disappear. And then not only do they disappear, but they lose everything. 600 men, all these horses, I think like 10 ships, all shipwrecked. And then they just leave. And they're gone. Right? Nobody knows where they're at. Cortes doesn't know where they're at. Pizarro doesn't know where they're at. Um... You know, everyone in Hispaniola, which is today Cuba, uh, is sort of like, yeah, they were here, but then they just, uh, they, they just, they just split, and we never saw them again, right? If you imagine you went out with your dad's car, you wrecked it, and then you come back ten years later, you better have a fucking good story, right? And that's basically why he diminishes himself, <laughs> right? He's saying, look how, look how messed up I, like, look how impoverished I was. I didn't have clothes. I was captured by Indians. I was wandering by foot for thousands of miles through this rugged terrain. But I did it because uh, I was doing it in the name of the crown, right? Uh, and I was doing it in the name and I felt that was the thing that compelled me to keep going. Uh, and you really have to sort of look at that too, right? Why is it that Cabeza de Vaca and like Narvaez heads, right? Mind you, in this time when there is no, like, law, there's no government set in place, right? They're still colonizing. You, The only law you have is, like, the governor, the adelantado, the guy, the main guy in charge of the expedition, right? And so you have men who are going from a, quote, a, quote, civilized place. Mind you, they're always at war. Uh, but there's a lot of, like, this chivalric early enlightenment late medieval period stuff that's going on about like god and honor and integrity and we do it for the king right uh and and certainly the conquistadors had that to wilderness right imagine go from that to wilderness and anything goes and you take a bunch of uh guys who and and to be frank a lot of conquistadors were like they were in debt right they had to buy their own shields they had to bring their own they did it because of the promise of rich. And it wasn't because they were going to be paid well. It's because they could, in theory, come upon riches. And so a lot of guys did it. And so imagine you take a lot of guys out to the middle of the wilderness. What's going to happen? Hilarity ensues, right? Shit goes wrong. It happened quite a bit that people would rebel against the adelantado. It happened to Narváez, obviously with Cabeza de Vaca. But with Cabeza de Vaca himself, when he, once he's, he actually becomes adelantado way after, uh, way after he, uh, Comes back to spain and they send him to the river plate in argentina he is uh pretty much um he is pretty much uh people rebel against him uh, and that's actually how he goes to prison uh, for the first time in second time in his life after first time was under cortez who was jealous of him uh, and thought he was gonna sort of make some power moves and then the second time was in uh, in in uh, the river plate in argentina when they're conquering that territory uh, and there's a rebellion against him, the adelantado. And so, that that idea, uh, you know, of a bina adelantado, that also factors into this narrative, right? Not only is he saying, "Oh, I am impoverished. I'm I'm completely nude, walking throughout this country, and, and really emphasizing the nudity, right? Saying I had nothing. I have nothing." But he's also saying, "But here's what I can offer you. This land is rich, and this is where flour grows well. By the way, in Florida, there is this one tribe, not so nice." But if you go down to South Texas, for instance, uh, and this, he's just talking about sort of geographical rivers at this point—they don't have names yet—and he's saying there's these there's a tribe, the Cualuitacans, um, who were very nice and and very kind, and they took me in. And so if you are the King and Queen of Spain, uh, and you are like Isabella la, la Católica, right, the Isabella the Catholic, right, and uh, Ferdinand and Isabel, right, if you're and, and you're looking for a guy. To conquer Florida and modern-day Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana, uh, all the way to Texas, all the way through the Southwest, who would you pick? Cortez, who went in there and just massacred everybody, but was an incredible politician of sorts, uh, but doesn't know that area as well. Or the guy who wandered it for 10 years, nude, and survived. You'd pick that guy, right? Uh, Turns out they don't send him back to uh, North America like he wanted. He wanted to become adelantado and create his own expedition and part of that is because he wanted to create you know he wanted to build his name again right um you have to think of 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 cabeza de vaca as someone who um he came from greatness and he and he his family fell from greatness and he's trying to get back to greatness and so that's where he's really trying to 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 become less othered in a way but then also to explain to the queen like not only did i do this with no resources but i did this and survived and by the way here's a document that shows where where you can settle and where which tribes you can settle which tribes you might have trouble settling, uh, with the flora and fauna of it like the the flowers and the and the, the kind of uh, the plants and the kind of you know and so he's like I, I know these places. Uh, it turns out uh, that many years later right once he gets back to Spain uh, he publishes La Relacion, the Narvaez expedition uh, much to to critical claim. comes out in I want to say. Uh, 1540 sometime. No, 1537 to 1540. So 15, sometime between then, like late late 30s, early 40s, he published La Relacion. And then 1545, a legal case against Cabeza de Vaca takes place. According to his secretary, Pedro Hernández, Cabeza de Vaca is imprisoned and on trial by the Corte for eight years. Eventually he is released and his reputation is restored. He writes a narrative of his years as adelantado in south america known as comentarios so imagine you try to restore your entire uh your entire thing you're 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 hailed as a hero at first uh by the way this is very common not only in colonial spain but uh colonies in general right uh the guy uh who like roanoke the the guy that roanoke virginia uh is is named after uh, that guy was like imprisoned in the tower of london right and then they let him out to go um, be a, a, an explorer once again, <laughs> like in uh, in in colonial America. But it happened all over the world. But, anyways, uh, was imprisoned. Uh, but during this time, was like fighting this case, and so had to release uh, another version, sort of of not the same text, but of sort of like you know he's always trying to clean clear his name. Uh, why is that pertinent or why is that germane to this text? Um, because it really tells us not only to take it with a grain of salt, uh, but it sort of introduces to this idea that like, what is the truth really, right? At the end of the day, la relación, right? This this this, this 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 telling of of what happened at Cabeza de Vaca's journeys in America is a highly subjective, only he was there, right? Only he has a truth. and the, and, and it really does make you interrogate like what truth really is um elon stevens you know the person who wrote the introduction says there's a lot of people a lot of people who might say this is um uh, well let's just go there she says who who see it as like magical realism or something right but she says quote invariably memoirs i'm here on page 31 the last very last page of the introduction she says invariably memoirs and testimonials are subjective accounts that means they come like they're personal accounts they falsify through enchantment and persuasion. This doesn't diminish their value in any way. The chronicle of the Narvaez expedition is invaluable precisely because it is polemical. Polemical just means political, right? Um, he was trying to win over the queen. He was trying to explain, hey, what, why did I disappear with all your ships and came back with nothing? And by the way, like, I was, you know, I'm back, right? <laughs> it, was, it was supposed to be political. It was supposed to get him that position of adelantado, right? Which he ended up doing and then it became his undoing. Um, But it has been, she says, it is and has been and is likely to remain a point of departure whereby to think the Spanish conquest of exploration through Florida and the southwestern territories and the way in which readers have interpreted to satisfy their own needs. So Elon Stevens says she brings up something interesting here where she's like, we project as much as, you know, we can say that this is a subjective account or this is a lie or not a lie. She says, I think that also says something about us that we would call it a lie, or not a lie. What makes us distrustful of a certain thing? Uh, Benji- uh, the Buckingham Smith, the, the historian who first wrote about um, who first wrote about uh, the, the Narvaez expedition in the English language, although it had been written about many years before in Spanish, right, for him, she's saying, like, what did he need out of this? Why is he interrogating the subject? Uh, and for him, it was like part of the reimagination or reimagining of the southwest as an anglo or a white space right uh so he it's it would be convenient for him to say look at this bumbling sort of dishonest uh spaniard you know what were the spaniards even doing they didn't bring civilization here they just conquered it in in, in a way uh in a brutal way and, you know and it's much the, sort of the same if, you, if you've you ever done texas history uh or if you've done u.s history. Um, not a lot given to sort of Spanish colonization. A lot given to British colonization. We learn a lot about that shit. But not a lot given about to sort of like the the ways in which the Spanish colonized, right? Um, and and of those places as originally being Spanish-speaking. And so, for instance, Beckenham Smith, she says, is going to project his own stuff onto it. Um, Bandelier is going to project something else onto it. If we go to uh, page uh, 29, uh, which is just the page before that, the very bottom, she says, um, I'll just read the thing. She says, the narrative Bandelier claims, and this, she just quotes him, is very difficult to translate for the reason that the criticism by Oviedo about its lack of clearness is too well-founded. Many parts of chapters, and also whole chapters, are so confused that it is impossible to follow the original, more than remotely, and paraphrasing had to uh, be restored to. Even then, in several instances, the meaning remains possibly somewhat obscure. It is as if the author, in consequence of a long isolation and constant intercourse with people of another speech, had lost touch with his narrative tongue. She says, again, Adolf Bandelier's comments ought to be seen against the larger historical background. It belongs unquestionably to those that feed the Spanish myth of el español desconfiable, the untrustworthy Spaniard. And we talked a little bit about that earlier, right? So if you're colonizing a formerly Spanish uh, territory, and I remind you, The Mexican-American War is in 1860, or 1860, 1850s. You know what? Hey, I'm at a computer right now. Let's just Google it. Uh, Hey, Siri. Let me look at the uh, Mexican-American War. Uh, April 25th, 1846 to February 2nd, 1848. Hey, I was off by like a decade. Um, But anyway, so if you've just conquered these lands... And I'll tell you a fun fact about the Mexican-American War in just a second. Uh, but if you conquer these lands and you need to rewrite the history of them, uh, it makes sense to sort of take those famous instances, of those famous works that, that took place there, and to reimagine them in the Anglosphere. That's largely how this is done. And so I sort of want to preamble this by saying so much of this text is open to interpretation. So much of it uh, is, has been sort of bludgeoned with a sort of like an Anglo gaze. And so I really want us to think about reimagining it or reclaiming it as as not only our own, but sort of as, as one of the first sort of like mestizo writings of the Southwest, right? Uh, to that end, sort of like a very, very proto, in some ways, and we know that he was, he lived in Mexico City, at least that's where he was heading. It's, it's a qu- sort of Mexican-American narrative, like the first Mexican, literally, and American narrative. And Spanish and all that other stuff. Um, But cool. But it's also sort of an interesting thing, too. I feel like so much of this is as an account from a conquistador. It's uh, it's a really interesting take on how they viewed the indigeneity. Uh, There's a passage here which he talks about um, um, uh, homosexuality. There's a passage in here which he talks about uh, cannibalism. And ironically enough, it's not the indigenous people who are eating each other, but it's the Spanish who resort to eating each other. Uh, There's also an interesting character in here, Estabanico, who is actually not Spanish, but from, uh, I think it's uh, Algeria or Morocco, West Africa, Northwest Africa. He speaks like four or five languages uh, and is one of the main characters in here. And so it's the first time we see a sort of like uh, a black character in American literature. Uh, So it's kind of cool, right? Um, I think it's cool. A few other things I want to go over so i just we we talked very briefly about how it's open to interpretation um and we talked about Vasconcelos. um but i want to go here to the page of it's 22 in the introduction so xxii um and i'm just gonna go here to the middle of like the quarter of the page down it was another chronicler of the spanish colonization the quote Elinca garcilaso de la vega 1539 to 1616, who used the rubric for the first time to denote a person, she's talking about mestizaje, a person of mixed Spanish and Indian heritage. Mestizaje, connoted by him, has become an ever-popular and also controversial racial process, especially in Mexico and Central America, reflected upon, among many others, by José Vasconcelos in The, quote, Cosmic Race, published in 1927, and Octavio Paz in The Labyrinths of Solitude, 1950. But even if Cabeza de Vaca is an unlikely originator of the rubric, she's talking about the rubric of mestizaje, it is fundamental to point out that in the final chapters of the Chronicle of the Narvaez expedition, he undergoes a startling metamorphosis in his physical appearance as well as in the sympathy for Indians. They, in turn, see him as unlike any other Spaniard. Should this not be seen as a beginning to the cultural mestizaje in the Americas? uh, And that kind of rounds out what I was talking about. So we broadening our term of mestizaje not just as a racial thing but as an ideological concept this blending this mixing of two cultures um today we might say that we we might use the word or the conjunction contact zones right Uh, a contact zone is when two cultures collide and there's a middle ground right we think of the borderlands as contact zones two contact zones coming together Uh, we think of houston in many ways there are a lot of contact zones you go to the galleria for instance uh, and there was just, you go to the skating rink and you're hearing, you know, Tagalog from, from the Philippines, you're hearing uh, Cantonese, you're hearing uh, Mandarin, you're hearing Spanish a lot, you're hearing English, you're hearing uh, Farsi, Arabic, you're hearing uh, German, you're hear- every, you know, the, the, it's literally the crossroads of, of the world in a lot of ways. And those are various contact zones. And what is that culture, right? Um, and I liked that, that idea of like this mestizaje, that there's a mestizaje that can be projected onto a lot of different contact zones, right? Uh, and what does it mean to be mestizo? What does it mean to not be uh neither here nor there, right? And that not from here or not from there. Um for for whatever it's worth, there is that sort of like uh there is a, th- a lot of people a lot of the critiques of of uh and this was uh Bandelier at the, at this this guy who was uh Adolf Bandelier who was who was talking about how like you know, I don't even know if you know maybe it's very possible that um Cabeza de Vaca was losing his tongue because, like, losing his Spanish because he was in isolation for nine years. Not exactly in isolation, but in, uh, uh, you know, he's, he was he was in, uh, you know. Sorry, I just got a text right now. <laughs> like, I'm going to date myself, you know. I I might use this in the future, but it was kind of a creepy text here. I'll just read it to you. USA, we see you may... Be in the path of Hurricane Marco for tips and advice or to file a claim. Please visit. Yeah, man. Uh, staying in Houston. It's, it's funny because we're all online. We can all be anywhere. Why do we stay in Houston? Why do we do that? I, I don't know, man. For me, it was the Mexican food. That's thats real, man. I stayed here because uh, it's comfortable. Anyway, um, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, I mean, talking about, like, the contact cultures, how many people have been, like, have been, like, called you, like, bocho? Or, like, you know, less than because the Spanish is less than perfect, right? And we, we get the original critique of that here, right? So, someone policing, uh, someone policing Cabeza de vaca Spanish, and this is, like, a, a scholar in, like, the 1930s or something like that, uh, saying, well, we don't know if he's he's here. Um, Cool. I want to just poke around a little bit and talk about a few other things. Um, we already talked about Adelantado, um, the Royal Commission. He wanted to become Adelantado, uh, and then that kind of thing. And what else do we talk about? Yeah, we talked about the ways in which um his his is sort of a departure from the uh it's a dep- his narrative is departure from the sort of the, the way in which his uh, historians have, have typically viewed his um other conquistadors. I'm poking around just seeing like did we did I get everything? I think I got everything, man. Let's go to the top of page X V I I I The image of the undressed explorer, El Viajero Desnudo, is a useful one in that, in La Relacion, Cabece de Vaca portrays himself as a wanderer, quote, through many very strange lands, lost and naked, and he perceives the Indians as, quote, tall and naked, suggesting that, quote, they were wonderfully built, very thin, strong, and agile. In other words, naked, in more than a dozen textual appearances, stand as a double attribute. It signifies bewilderment even embarrassment on the part of the voyager and is also used to indicate in an uncontaminated natural disposition toward the environment by the natives this is semi-democratic a semi-democratic quality that i suspect is one of the reasons the narrative has become so popular over the last 150 years in it america simultaneously understood as the continent and a la robert frost quote the nation before it became such distills a libertarian zest that erases difference between pushing its inhabitants to the limit. That's what I wanted to talk about. This idea of mestizaje through necessity, through this sort of like uh, emerging of of like the 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 nudity in a way, the nakedness, the um, the 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 uh, this idea of being pushed to the limit and, and becoming like um, living like them is almost a, another kind of like mestizaje. And it, in, in this narrative, it becomes the narrative arc, right? He goes from being a conquistador in charge of all these ships, you know, this guy who aspires to, you know, to become an adelantado, uh, though he does afterwards as well. Um, really coming to terms with, you know, really evolving on what his take on the indigenous people are. Uh, and and, so, and though there are a lot of ways in which he sees them in the beginning as not human. Uh, not like they're not human, but like he dehumanizes them in a lot of ways. Uh, I think he comes to see them as people toward the middle and then really at the end I think he's having an epiphany here. Um and mind you this is like the 15 1520s 15, and so you know if you judge him by a, a woke standard of like 2020 you know he's he's not going to impress you. Uh but to to the idea where he you know him coming to the terms that like hey these are people worthy of uh conversion which is also fucked up. But he's like hey I think they have souls. <laughs> <laughs> but that's like pretty woke for 1520, right? When they just, and mind you, at this time they just fought the Moors. Uh, there was a, a lot of really dehumanization, and mind you, at this time too, uh, Spain as, and it's not Spain as a country the way we see it today, but it was a, a, a group of like duchies and kingdoms. They had been at war for like, man, like 400 years, 300 years. Before then, just fighting fighting the Moors and, and fighting uh, uh, various factions, fighting parts of France, fighting fighting parts of the Holy Roman Empire, which was, at that time, Germany. When they talk about, like, you know, um, that was like the second German Empire. There, were, there was a the first Holy Roman and the second. Uh, and at this time, it was very much, uh, you know, alive, and it was splintering becoming Lutheran and stuff. By the way, the last thing I want to end on today uh, is the Battle of Ravenna which um cabeza de vaca took uh uh fought took part in right he was he was one of the major like um figures in that war interesting because we haven't talked yet about cabeza de vaca as a dude uh who descended from quote unquote greatness the legend has it and nobody knows it is true no one's been able to sort of trace it back but he got the name cabeza de vaca is literally like head of a cow uh, but he got it from uh, it, it was it was a surname that was given to his family by a king who helped uh, a duchy, which was like sort of like a little small kingdom. Who they were fighting? Uh, they were fighting um, outside. Let me see if I can actually find that that passage. You should have read it for today. Um, but essentially, they get it because his ancestor puts a, a cow's head near this road. Uh, which allows his side to escape and then eventually defeat the the, the oncoming army and so it sort of saves the day. And so he's been named Cabeza de Vaca, you know, head of a cow. Uh, and so we think of the ways in which Cabeza de Vaca has been othered in like every other way. He's put in prison Is he's trying to clear his name. Uh, and uh, you can kind of see how he really wants redemption and he's really trying to redeem his family. Uh, and it's just, it's an honorific title, but he's, you know, uh, he wants to become adrenatado by the way we haven't talked about this but there are two versions of la relación this is the original right this is the one that was published uh in in immediately after he came back and it was published in uh uh in spain right uh at the time in the, in the 1530s uh there was a, as he sort of fought this court battle and eventually he was fine but he had all uh, cabeza de vaca had all his honorific titles stripped from him uh, and he was ordered to go to jail, and he he obviously uh, had fought this really tooth and nail, uh, and it was over him being overthrown as adelantado in the River Plate, right? So it was one of those typical stories where, uh, in the the River Plate uh, uh, being uh, sort of in Argentina between Argentina and Uruguay, like I mentioned earlier, but that was that was one of those things where his ambition really outdid him, uh, but you could see how that drained everything of him, and so he as he was fighting this court battle, he was really Trying to re reimagine for the public his exploits in America, uh, and so a lot of people take the first sort of iteration of la relación more seriously than the second. Um, that's just simply because that was the truth that he told the Queen uh, versus the truth that he ended up trying to tell, you know, the public later to sort of clear his name. Uh, and he's this is a sort of this trial was deeply embarrassing for 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 cabeza de vaca, you know. Um, it's it's really sort of unclear what the charges are, and I, I would really have to get into the weeds with sort of like colonial era or sort of law and stuff like that. Uh, but it's 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 sort of like uh, he'd had to have all your titles stripped from you is a is a humiliating thing, uh, and so you could see how that he would re sort of jigger the text so that it's 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 completely it's completely sort of like in his. Uh, in his favor right and and, and sort of paint him in a different light than maybe what the public would see him um last things i want to talk about with this uh, book i want to talk about the battle of Ravenna in just a second uh and then but i, I wanted to, i wanted to talk about one more thing that just escaped my mind oh man i'm losing it anyway battle of Ravenna is uh, is uh fought in, in 1512 so this is before Uh, This is just to give you an insight into the kind of... So as we dig into the narrative in proper. this is an insight into how uh, Cabeza de Vaca viewed the world at this point. This is his worldview, right? So this is just from Wikipedia, right? But it's a pretty good rundown. I vouched for it. It's pretty good. The Battle of Ravenna fought on 11th April 1512 was a major battle uh, of the War of the League of Cambrai. Uh, It pitted forces of the Holy League against France, uh, and their the Holy League was the Pope, uh, and their Pharisee, uh, Ferrarisi allies, uh, who were uh, Italian. Uh, although the French and Ferrarese decimated the papal Spanish forces, their extraordinary triumph was overshadowed by the loss of their brilliant young general, Gaston de Foix. The victory, therefore, did not help them secure northern Italy. The French withdrew entirely from Italy in the summer of 1512, uh, as Swiss mercenaries hired by Pope Julius II and imperial troops under Emperor Maximilian I, arrived in Lombardy. The Sforza was restored to power in Milan, right? Uh, But there was a... So you can kind of get the context for it. A huge battle. Uh, Mind you, at this time, the Enlightenment is taking place, or it's the birth of the Enlightenment. Uh, The Enlightenment is is something that separates uh, sort of the modern times from the medieval times. So uh, medieval times is... uh, And and this is sort of part of Cabeza de Vaca's worldview... um, for a lot of this medieval times, it was kingdoms and duchies and, like, there wasn't proper countries like nation-states as we know them now. There wasn't, like, France and Germany. Uh, those places came later. Of course, they existed. Um, and those cultures came from places. But, like, for instance, there was the Kingdom of Bavaria. There was the Kingdom of Luxembourg. There was the, the king- There still is the Kingdom of Luxembourg. <laughs> um, uh, there was the Duchy of, like, Saxony. And so there were these small little kingdoms that there was one ruler and he had a bunch of like peasants right and it was called feudalism the idea is that they would it was sort of like sharecropping they would give you a parcel of land and you were in charge of working that land uh, but you did everything for the king right and everything was for the king or the queen and so when the kingdoms of of leon and and, um uh, and castile came together right um that that it was still very much in that in that in that realm right in spain right it was a feudal system it was still medieval europe um a lot of people hearken the enlightenment is like 1492 right when columbus discovered america the enlightenment is this idea where like science becomes a big thing right used to be that if you were a scientist uh and you would see like pythagoras you know like the pythagorean theorem like you would learn in say uh math or something like that with the triangles you know, A squared plus B squared equals C squared, that thing, like, that guy was burned for that. <laughs> like, just because, you know, he, he he did, like, this plus this equals this, people are like, he's a witch, and people burned him and stuff like that. Uh, so that was not kosher before, like, you know, in the early 15th century, right? But you could, as the, the like, the Americas were discovered, quote, unquote, discovered by Christopher Columbus, um, then people started looking and they were intrigued and interested in the wider world what is beyond right um uh what is out there uh i want to believe right (laughs) what is what is out there uh how do we build ships right and those things became very valuable um because at this time right uh this is a very poor kingdom and so like they needed they needed resources right and how do you get resources you go and you colonize right uh and so spain was sort of one of the really early sort of uh originator that originators of that 1500s they were colonizing a lot of uh the western hemisphere um and essentially what was happening was this they've been at war they were the they pretty much owed a lot of money to through various it's a bigger story but uh those kingdoms in spain owed uh, banks in the united kingdom what you know england today a lot of money and so a lot of you know it would happen in the 16 17 1800s that a lot of the gold even that was like stolen from mexico or that was stolen from uh, the silver mines in, in in peru and things like that they would flow through sevilla right which was sort of the river and then end up in uh, end up in the uk because they were just paying off all these debts and stuff uh, and they were always borrowing money to sort of do their conquest and uh, spain for what it's worth was acting in this in a in a, in a feudal way and sort of a the, the old system reigned for a long time afterwards, with the king and the queen, and and it would, even as the rest of the world was going into the Enlightenment and sort of like modern day capitalism was becoming a thing, right? And, uh, and which has roots in like you know like the slave trade and shit like that, right? It's like um, that as those things were happening, uh, you know uh spain was still and so that's how you see you know spanish century is like the 1500s uh the british century is like the 16 not the 1600 also the 16 1700s uh, but really it, it switched to like uh the dutch in the 1600s uh the british in the 1700s uh, and then you see the fall of all the empires later as, as we get into the, the 1900s right um not the fall of them but you can see they they're always sort of musical chairs who's on top in the world and who's not um but anyways before any of that's going on you have this battle of ravenna and the reason it's important is because you can kind of see a proto version of of the forces that are going to be at play in the western hemisphere right between protestants and catholics between the pope and the pope's sort of expansion into the new world and to seeing these indigenous people as people who could potentially be you know subjects uh, of the pope and the in the beliefs and, and uh, subjects of the Catholic Church, right? And so you can really see Cabeza de Vaca's worldview shaped by these pivotal events uh, his marriage to a conversa, right? A converso, you know, uh, his othering in the community, his idea of like virtue and his fall from glory, right? His participation in the Battle of Ravenna um, to sort of help protect the Pope uh, and, and to do it on behalf of the King and Queen of Spain, right? Who were the protectorates of the Pope. Um, and so you see, you see, you can see how his worldview was. So to see him evolve on something like um, the way in which he might treat indigenous people is kind of like a really interesting thing, because he was he was charged with like killing Moors and killing you know uh, a lot of people, arguably Jews at this time too. This Conquisition was going on, but Spain was really in flux at this time. You you got to remember um, the Enlightenment was going on, science was becoming a thing, uh, and so he played a, a really pivotal role in that. And it's kind of an interesting, like, it's weird to think, like, when Cabeza de Vaca was born, which was like, I think, I want to say it was 1580s. They think it was between, no, 14-something. The 1480s and 1492, I think they say it was. Which, uh, by the way, 1492 is when Columbus sailed uh, to Española. Um Let me look. go back to the chronology. Was born in... Between 1485 and 1492, Alvar Núñez Cabeza de Vaca was born in Jerez de la Frontera, Spain. Uh, This is a period of intense transformation in the nation. The Jews are expelled from the Iberian Peninsula by the Catholic royalty, Isabella of Castile and Ferdinand of Aragon. Uh, That's why I said Aragon, because... uh, Fuck, I was right, man. I was just saying Leon and Aragon, but, like, I think the kingdom was Leon, but he is Ferdinand of Aragon. See... This is why you got to take a better history teacher than me, man. I'm just, well, I'm not a history teacher. I'm a literature teacher. But anyways, Christopher Columbus sails across the Atlantic to land in the so-called New World. And in Antonio de Nebrica of Salamanca publishes the first grammar of the Spanish language. Um, cool. So that happens around that time. But Cabeza de Vaca, it's interesting to think about Cabeza de Vaca, who was born in medieval times, technically, the very, they would call it the late, uh, uh, Middle Ages, was wandering around Texas. Like what? That is bananas. To think someone born in medieval times was sort of like hanging out in like Galveston. By the way, he was he was marooned there, and he encountered the Karankawa. We'll talk about it uh, in, in subsequent lectures. But he 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 encountered the Karankawa, who were the Karankawa tribe were not friendly. They were cannibals, uh, hunter gatherers, but they uh, not pleasant people. Uh, not not really pleasant people. Um. Uh, though he does uh, say that they did help him in a, in a lot of ways. Kamesi de is one of those guys who's like uh, the lovable idiot in some ways has just gotten uh, and I, I don't call him I don't say that I'm not, I'm not trying to co-sign on anything that uh, that Buckingham Smith or Bandelier said about him. I do think that he's a hero in a lot of ways but is is, is sort of like has more luck than brains if, if that makes sense in a lot of ways. A lot of people who encounter the Karankawa even other indigenous tribes at this time don't get away uh, don't get away that well. Uh, but anyway. Cool. Uh, battle of Ravenna. Last thing I want to leave you with. Um, if you Google the monster of Ravenna, um, it'll bring up this really interesting anecdote, and this is something that was witnessed before the uh, the battle of Ravenna, which Cabeza de Vaca participated in. But it gives you a real keyhole into the kind of world that Cabeza de Vaca was operating in, but also the sort of, like, maybe the mindset that he had. And so you can sort of, as, as some people might see his work as magical realism, you can also look at these incidences in which sort of participated in major life events around his life, like the Battle of Ravenna, and see that, like, well, maybe that was just part of the world in which he lived. So this is called the Monster of Ravenna. This was possibly a, an apocryphal late Renaissance era monstrous birth, whose appearance in early 1512 near the city of Ravenna was widely reported in contemporary European pamphlets and diaries. Right, which were like the news of the time. Images of its grotesque features were interpreted symbolically by opponents of both the Catholic Church and the Protestant Reformation, although a more common explanation of the times was that the beast was an omen regarding the outcome of the Battle of Ravenna. Modern medical consensus identifies the monster as a child with some variety of severe congenital disorder. So... Um, I'll give you the history of it. The earliest accounts of the monster's existence is from the diarist Sebastiano di Branca de Tadaliana, Tadalini uh, who recorded on March 8th that news of a strange infant's birth had reached Pope Julius II in Rome. According to his account, the child was said to have uh, been born of a nun and a friar and was marked by a horned head, the letters Y, X, V on his chest and with one leg, hairy, and cloven hoofed, hoofed, while the other leg's midsection grew a human eye. On March 11th, the apothecary Luca Landucci uh, described how word of this incident had reached Florence. Having apparently received a drawing of the monster, Landucci described it to possess features such as a single horn, the wings of a bat, hermaphroditic genitalia, an eye on its right knee, and a clawed left foot like an, like an eagle's. The tale was subsequently immortalized by further chronicles of this era, including Johannes Multivalis, Jacques Ruf, Conrad Licosithines, Caspar Hideo, Pierre Boistinau, Fortuny Chinalisi, and Embrois Paré. Landucci's physical descriptions seem to have been considered authoritative as later chronicles, particularly Boistinae, uh, largely reproduced his account word for word. In medieval Europe, it was common practice for malformed infants, especially those with little chance of survival, to be abandoned and left to die by starvation. This was done in Ravenna on the order of the Pope. Even after its reported death, however, news of the monster's birth continued to sweep Europe, after often in stories greatly embellished by the storyteller. In a popular poem given by Marcelo Palo- Palonio, relatively soon after its birth, the monster is implied to possess two heads. With more time, the description of the Ravenna monster evolved, changing its number of legs from two to one, and eventually syncretizing with the morality figure of Frau Welt. Uh, Giovanni Battista Bisoni was con to design the illustrations for the second edition of Fortunio Liceti's account, with the monster of Ravenna centrally displayed on the front piece. Uh, by this point, the creature was well established as possessing a single clawed foot. Right. The reason I bring this up is because later in the book, uh, and it's really sort of like the last third of the book. Um, you can there's a there's a passage in which Cabeza de Vaca comes across these people called. it's 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 a tribe where they have this this like demon figure that runs around called the bad man uh and you can kind of see how a lot of people say oh well is he just doing magical reels in there it's like well if the if the monster ravenna was like a a thing that was like people really took seriously uh you can see how he maybe had taken especially in the in the in the context of uh of dark and light good and evil um christian non-christian how he really saw maybe some of these events through those lenses, uh, and certainly through sort of like the, through fate. Uh, one of the interesting factoids, and we haven't talked about this yet, is that um, before Narvaez left on his expedition uh, with Cabeza de Vaca, um, there was a, there was a woman, a Moorish woman, who conveyed uh, to a Spanish woman that the that the basically the endeavor would be damned. It would be it would be failed. And that uh no one would come back right and cabeza de vaca says the creepy thing about it was that uh it happened like everything that the lady said would happen would happen that we would be she says if you if you crash on this coast don't go inland do not go inland uh and he finds himself in florida and you do wonder sort of like is that why he tries to set sail again right and we do know that's how he ends up in like he gets shipwrecked in Galveston, right um so it's really interesting uh for me i find it a really uh sort of fascinating read uh not only is it between medieval and the enlightenment not only is it between spanish and indigenous uh, or mestizaje connecting old mestizaje to maybe contemporary notions of mestizaje but it's got all these sort of weird mythological you know the monster of, of ravenna right this sort of the bad man that runs around um these tribes that he inhabits and and, or inhabits the land but that also sort of like you know take him on are contentious with him or kind with him or not right and it's a it's a it's a at the very least it's an interesting sort of proto-anthropological meaning the study of people uh record of of this time right and really of where we live right if you look at um if you look at the map i didn't i didn't require you guys to look at the map but it's kind of gnarly it's kind of cool um, on page XL turn it sideways sort of uh, if you get your hand at the top of the book just turn it right uh, and that is Texas man and then you can see everywhere he's been uh, but you can sort of see the bay of uh, sort of like the Bolivar Peninsula and you see Galveston and you see where Houston is today at Brenham and, and and all that kind of stuff and then all his sort of tracks and these are the different tracks that the various competing um Authorities on, on Cabeza de Vaca said he went. But anyway, uh, I just encourage you guys to just sort of be open with the book. Uh, it's endlessly confusing at times, and it can be really tough, but uh, we're going to get through it together, okay? Uh, cool. This is the first day of uh, Cabeza de Vaca. Albert Nunez, Cabeza de Vaca, Chronicle of the Narvaez uh, Expedition. You guys be good, okay? Do your readings. If your grandma's still alive, call her. She She, she misses you.